Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at RAINNetwork.com. Uh, so this is becoming a manageable disease, and that's the reason why both the World Health Organization and the U.S. government are moving to move us beyond the pandemic status. Welcome to the Beyond COVID series of the RAIN Insights podcast. Here, we explore new developments in the COVID-19 pandemic and other infectious diseases and provide you and your business with the methods and tools needed to prepare. Let's listen in on today's conversation. Bill and Fred, uh, thank you uh, for taking the time once again to inform us uh, about COVID and beyond and various um, health risks that uh, you are seeing. Uh, Bill, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, give us an update, uh, in particular, the World Health Organization had a recent announcement and the White House has also uh, provided an update in terms of their position. Sure. Well, as you recall, the last time we talked, uh, the biggest thing we were saying, well, one of the biggest things we were saying was that we all had to kind of hold our breath and see what would happen through Lunar New Year. Well, Lunar New Year just ended two days ago now, so we can't say that we're past it. But the massive travel that's associated with Lunar New Year began now three weeks ago. And so we've been through the bulk of the Lunar New Year travel. Most people are making their, they're either home or making their way home. And around the world, with very, very few exceptions, I, I believe the only exception is Taiwan, um, we are seeing case loads and then the more objective data, which is hospitalizations and deaths, are all going down. Despite this massive travel, we're still seeing things going down. And even the Chinese, to the extent you can trust the data, the Chinese say that, that what they are seeing is going down. So looks like around the world so you know so far so good i don't i i still hold my breath until maybe a couple weeks a couple weeks from now and we're two weeks out from lunar new year but it's it's looking good and in light of that the world health organization um yesterday made their most positive comment to date and they said basically that while they're not yet at a point where they want to terminate the global pandemic health emergency the world health organization believes the world has reached a turning point that will allow termination of the pandemic emergency in the coming months. They weren't more specific than that. Um, they emphasized the importance of vigilance, um, continued application of mitigation tools, but they said that we're definitely entering a new phase. And then along those same lines, yesterday, the president announced that in the United States, that the public health emergency will be will be ending. Um, the, I don't have the exact date, but it was the very beginning of May. So another two months within the public health emergency, not that anybody knows it now it's just a way that the government can pass out money more easily um, so we're definitely appear to be entering the the I don't I don't even want to be so optimistic as to say the closing rounds but it look it kind of looks that way right now Fred uh, your vantage point from the hospital as well as uh, your work with various researchers yeah yes David uh, what's exciting I agree with Bill and what's happening is essentially we are achieving 
a form of herd immunity. Now, it's not immunity to infection necessarily, but it is achieving herd immunity for serious disease and the hospitalizations and deaths. I think we are moving that direction. The one group that everybody is still concerned about, and I am as well, is those 70 and older, those with chronic disease and who are immunosuppressed, they are still at risk for hospitalizations and death. But the remainders, or the rest of the population, uh, when they get the infection, it's a, a, a modest cold. So it's, it's not of great concern anymore. Fred, I know you've been studying some of the data coming out around uh, vaccine efficacy, uh, particularly around the boosters uh, dealing with variants. What can you share with us on that front? Yeah, this is, uh, it turns out to be a very uh, tricky subject. And I actually uh, talked to Paul Offit at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's a real expert to get his opinions on this because it's very hard to sort out because you, if you uh, measure immunity uh, two weeks after a vaccine, the efficacy can look great. But then if you do it uh, two months after the vaccine, it, it deteriorates quite considerably some of the preparations. So it's all about when you test it, etc. And then the other key uh, problem that I didn't understand is that the serum neutralization of the virus, it turns out that you need a fourfold increase in ability to uh, neutralize to be of clinical significance. So when people say, oh, it's twofold, that's really great. It isn't. It's not a clinically significant. So the take home, as I understand it at this juncture, is that the when what happened originally is people uh, were originally got two shots that was considered fully vaccinated. With the onset of Omicron, it became clear that two shots was insufficient. And now uh, it's recommended that everyone get three shots and that's considered full vaccination. For those that are immunosuppressed or have chronic diseases, uh, uh, over and above that in about three or four months, our booster has been recommended. And initially, the only booster we had was the monovalent. That is the original vaccine, a little bit lower dose um, that was against the what's called now the ancestral strain, the first strain that showed up. Then the FDA, without data, decided to approve a bivalent vaccine. That is a mixture of the spike protein sequence from the ancestral strain plus the BA5 Omicron and BA4 Omicron sequences. And that's called the bivalent booster. The theory being that this would improve the efficacy of the booster. Well, there have been some very good studies, one coming out of Columbia and David Ho's lab, that showed no difference between a monovalent uh, booster and the bivalent booster with regards to serum neutralization. They were identical, no statistical difference. And the only, there's only been one study that's been released showing actual protection from infection, uh, infection events, and that was from Moderna comparing the monovalent uh, booster versus the new bivalent. They found only a 10% improvement in efficacy. So I think the bottom line here is, yes, uh, certainly those that are uh, in the 
immunocompromised state or are over 65 to 70 um, and, or have chronic illness do need a booster. It really doesn't matter what it is as long as you, you build up, re, re, jack up the antibodies again because they do wane over time, uh, particularly uh, with regards to protection Omicron. So the recommendation is now a booster about six months after the third shot and then for those in those these categories, at least once a year, they should receive a booster vaccine. But it's not clear that uh, modifying the sequences in the booster is going to be very, very helpful. And beyond that, there have been some questions raised about low level, admittedly very low level, um, serious, serious adverse events, or even some non not quite so serious subclinical events such as myocarditis in younger people that may be increasing the risk rate a little bit more than has been initially recognized. Still not not that significant, but in the sitting where with younger people, there is little benefit to the vaccine. Um, there, it really raises the question of should we be pushing uh, vaccines or boosters? Vac the initial vaccines, yes, but boosters on younger, and by younger I mean seventy below seventy. Um, the benefit may not just be may not be there when you look at risk benefit comparisons. So the. Big question that I think many people are asking is where are we going next with this? Um, my sense is that barring the emergence of a new, more virulent variant, and I don't think we're going to be seeing that. We've talked in previous sessions about why it is less likely that we're going to see a more virulent variant. We may see more infectious variants. That can happen. But what that's what's happening with that is that COVID is becoming a much more routine circulating disease, very similar to the to the previous uh, currently circulating four coronavirus vaccines that don't even have names, they just have numbers. Um, but it doesn't appear that we are going to be, um, we, we, what it does appear is that we are just, this will be a circulating endemic uh, cold, just like we have with, with these other coronaviruses and with the hundred or so um, other uh, adenoviruses. Uh, Bill, I, I agree with that analysis. The one group, as we talk, we've been talking about, is those 70 and older. Uh, there, uh, the concern is the vaccines are not as effective at preventing hospitalization. We've seen that in our own hospital. Uh, and we've had a number of patients uh, over 70 have died who were fully vaccinated uh, of COVID-19. So that group, what's recommended is if you get, uh, you, you diagnose uh, COVID-19, you should immediately start Paxlovid for that group. And if you do that, then you reduce hospitalizations by 80, over 80%. And I think that additional protection really uh, has the potential to eliminate almost all hospitalizations, which would be, we'd love to see. And along those same lines, um, looking towards the future, what's important is that research on other medications has not stopped. Intentionally looking at other routes different from what Paxlovid uses so that if 
there happens to be a mutation that renders the, the Paxlovid less effective, we hopefully before too long are going to have alternatives. You know, right now the only real alternative is the IV medication remdesivir. Um, so we, we need alternatives and that work is still ongoing. So, you know, we have ways of preventing, we have ways of treating. Um, people have to take, have to avail themselves of the prevention and treatment and many of the deaths that are being seen are in people who have done neither or certainly not both. Um, so this is becoming a manageable vaccine and a manageable disease. And that's the reason why both the World Health Organization and the US government are moving to move us beyond the pandemic status. Yeah, in regards to other oral medications, uh, there was a report in the New England Journal from China of a oral equivalent of remdesivir which is bioavailable, and it had comparable efficacy to Paxlovid and does work by a different mechanism. The Paxlovid is a protease inhibitor, while the remdesivir actually uh, blocks the chain elongation of the RNA. So we, we will have, and I think that will be uh, in the United States in not too distant future, uh, we will have at least two oral drugs that can uh, work against this virus, which is very encouraging. And similarly, we know of several efforts, including one joint effort between the um, a Danish organization and the U.S. Army that's looking at a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Um, it's, it's attacking a common part of a coronavirus um, that would address all coronaviruses. Um, so there, there, are, there are, are new developments that are coming that have been spurred by the, the pandemic and make the world safer going forward. But one of the big things that that I'm telling organizations that I work with, it's is just like we did after pandemic flu scare. It did not ever become the real pandemic flu that we were worried about. Um, many organizations, including the U.S. government, really took the time, based on the experience, to rebuild their critical incident planning framework. And know that I'm saying framework, it's not a plan, because when something happens, you can't, you never can pull out a plan because nothing goes according to plan, but you can at least have a framework where you've talked about everything from um, where you get your information to how you communicate your information to what HR policies you need to have, and you have all that in place so that you can pull your framework off the shelf. And I think that's one of the biggest, when we talk about the future and what we need to do next, that's one of the biggest things that organizations need to be looking at. So both of you um, raised some interesting points in your comments. One of which, um, because conspiracy theories still exist, uh, a lot of disinformation is still out there. But what I'm hearing from both of you is that we continue to learn uh, about the virus. We continue to learn about the best practices. We continue to study and follow the efficacy of the vaccines, and that that really is the process of science. Uh, it's not, you know, something fixed in stone. It's constantly learning and then obviously sharing what we have learned uh, with, uh, with not only physicians, but uh, we'll call it with the public. And maybe you could just uh, take a step back because, Bill, to your point about, you know, things we've learned during the pandemic. Um, the amount of disinformation, the amount of distrust that has been generated of institutions, of political leaders, 
obviously some people have played fast and loose uh, with the truth and with the facts but I think uh, it is important an important theme for our audience to hear from people such as you and Fred people who are in the trenches that science is constantly an evolving process and constantly learning and having to tweak and adjust challenge assumptions revisit data etc etc maybe you know Fred particular because of your involvement with re, you know researchers and, and the journals I, I think it would be helpful maybe if both of you could expand upon a very very important uh, takeaway uh, for this pandemic and also for some future health issues that we may have to face yeah uh, David yeah um, I, I would like to comment on this uh, it turns out what what I've learned is I am, quote, an expert in infectious diseases. But when it came to understanding vaccines, understanding how to detect a true side effect of the vaccine uh, and to to assess efficacy, I didn't really understand these facts. And I had to work very hard to understand them. And I listened to the vaccine experts. And what we have to do is know who is the true expert and listen to them and not try to second guess them. Physicians have tried to second guess with regards to vaccine toxicities, vaccine side effects. And what I've learned is whenever, anytime you vaccine, and Bill can comment on this too, uh, he'll know better than I do, uh, but anytime you have a vaccine, vaccinate a large population, there is a series of background health events that are always occurring. Now, if you happen to vaccinate right before uh, an unrelated health event, people will interpret that closeness of timing and say the vaccine caused it. When in reality, if the person hadn't gotten the vaccine, this event would have occurred anyway. And that's why you have to use a statistical method that subtracts all of the background before you can say that a certain event that related in temporally to the vaccine is a true side effect. And with regards to myocarditis, which I think has been blown way out of proportion, it's 2.7 cases per 100,000. And it's in, in the ages, I think, about 15 to 29 adolescent males are most likely to get it. And 76% are mild cases. And that, and within three to four days, their symptoms of chest pain resolve. So it's a very self-limited, reversible, in most cases, side effect. And yet it's as though, oh my gosh, we're going to kill everyone if we get an adolescent male, we give them a vaccine. That simply isn't true. And the problem is, as we all know, is that COVID-19 can cause myocarditis much more frequently than the vaccine. And therefore, the risk benefit is, is dramatic here. And the, the vaccine is far more beneficial uh, than, than getting COVID. Uh, 
along those same lines, I went back to the the very first piece that I wrote on COVID, which was back in March of 2020. Actually, I actually think there was one I had in February, but the one I can find is March of 2020. And in there, I was talking about okay, what do organizations need to be thinking about as they're developing their res- their response. And one of the first things I said was. There's a lot of data. There's going to be a lot of interpretation that it's required. And what you need is, you know, don't try to roll this at home. You need to get somebody, a trusted entity, who can help cut through the data to find the experts, just as as Fred was saying, to find the, the real vaccine experts who are commenting based on science and data and not who are commenting based on a what their predetermined decision outcome is and then trying to find the data that matches their predetermined outcome. So having that that in place and then actually the second thing I said was once you have your your reliable expertise in place then set up a communications plan because what is going to um, harm your operation the most is if your workforce is not understanding what's going on because a lack of understanding is what creates the greatest fear and the most disruption to operations. So get good understanding, good guidance, and then develop good plans. And that's going to be two of the most important things that you can do when, 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 and it's not an if, it's when the organization has to deal with the next major critical event. Okay, uh, sage advice, uh, a dose of humility. And what I'm hearing is, um, you know, this is about getting information from reliable sources and uh, recognizing that the information flow will continue. I will, uh, just on a a slight editorial note, uh, the new head of CNN has uh, um, altered sort of the strategy. Um, He is claiming no more talking heads with political agendas. Um, so more fact-based, not that won't have people with opinions, but more fact-based, more uh, unbiased coverage. And certainly there, there, there were a number of people who showed up uh, to report on the pandemic and to report on um, various information as well as efficacy issues and issues of safety, etc., who seemed to have a uh, political position or a political fight in the game. So, Fred and Bill, uh, thank you so much for sharing an update on where we are. Uh, Thank you for continuing to monitor. Uh, We'll have a number of topics for the uh, next session, including uh, some of the data coming out of China. And um, we do have a number of people who are interested in uh, traveling around the world and understanding, you know, the various risks. Um, Bill, I'll take away uh, from what you and Fred have told me, uh, it's not an if event, as you just said, it's just a matter of when and how we'll be able to respond, but there'll be something next around the corner. So thank you again for sharing the data and the perspectives and the insights. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. 
Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents. Our host, David Lawrence, is the founder of RAIN, a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn more about RAIN's market-leading risk intelligence products at RAINnetwork.com. That's RAINnetwork, R-A-N-E, network.com. Thank you for listening.